my mom always said was I could get knocked down over and over, but I always got up and got further than I was before. And I, I felt like I let her down because I didn't think I could do it again. You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome to Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan. Thanks for joining me today. As I continue to recover and slowly stabilize from the major depressive episode I experienced over the autumn months, I've kept going back through the interviews I recorded in early November, and I've been editing them for release. This installment to Bipolar Recorder was originally recorded on November 5th, which was about two weeks before my major depressive episode escalated to a crisis situation. During this recording, I talk a lot about how dicey addiction, recovery, and maintaining stability is. I also talk about wanting to take a break from all narcotic substances. I mention this because as with some other installments from this most recent series, as I was editing the audio, I kept noticing that there are times in this recording where I discuss being in the throes of mood cycles, medication changes, and other disruptions. If you pay attention, you can hear as these factors arise throughout the discussion, it's pretty eerie to me. But enough about that. The guest for this installment was a woman named Brittany, who I had met through Twitter Spaces. As you may recall, Twitter Spaces are public audio chat rooms. I used to be very active in the mental health Twitter space community up until a couple of months ago. Occasionally, I still host Twitter spaces. It's been a great way to meet people who want to come on the show. I really love this installment because Brittany is so articulate and such a good storyteller. Her trials with bipolar disorder over the last couple of years alone are haunting and incredible to listen to. Brittany talks extensively about an inpatient hospitalization experience that she endured about a year ago. I do have an important content warning for today's installment. This one goes into a very detailed conversation about suicidal ideation and even a suicide attempt. It also mentions self-harm a couple of times. Brittany discusses these topics in a very personal but tactful manner. Still, the subject matter is obviously very dark. Listener discretion is advised. It was an important conversation to have, and I know you'll find it as incredible as I did. Let's go ahead and listen to Brittany and her story.
Today, I am joined by Brittany, who is a woman from Houston, Texas, living with mental illness. And she's been so kind to take some time today to speak with me about her life and experiences. So Brittany, let me pass it over to you and start by asking, what is your formal diagnosis? Or do you perhaps live with multiple diagnoses? So um, about four years ago, I was officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder type 2. Okay. Uh, generalized anxiety disorder and insomnia. Um, I had been diagnosed uh, just major depressive disorder when I was 19 or 20. Um, mm-hmm. And then earlier this year, I had a psychiatrist um, diagnose me with borderline personality disorder as well. Wow. Okay. Um, so that's kind of like a controversial, um, whether I have it or not, I saw another psych that's like, uh, I don't want to put that in your formal diagnosis. I'd rather get to know you before I say, yes, you have this. So yeah, it's yeah. A mixed bag. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, for our audience, you may not know borderline personality disorder often gets confused with bipolar disorder because they both involve very sudden mood shifts. Of course, with bipolar disorder, those mood shifts are much more prolonged. Now, you said you were diagnosed uh, with major depression when you were about 19 or 20. How old are you now? How long have you been living with these types of conditions for? I am 36 now. And it was a a big deal getting diagnosed in the first place. Um, Mental health was not something talked about in our household um it was pretty taboo when I Mm -hmm. was uh I think I was nine years old uh my mom uh attempted suicide um and she spent time in a mental facility um Mm -hmm. for a couple of weeks um so it was kind of one of those we brush it under the rug and we don't really talk about it kind of things um so I had asked my my mom you know I feel like I need to talk to somebody when I was a little bit older and in my late teens and out of the house and you know she asked me why what's wrong like I just I don't know I just feel like I need someone to talk to like I don't feel okay all of the time um and it was never really met with open arms um yeah and then I had got married um when I was 21 and, um, I, I had told my husband at the time, you know, I'm, I'm not okay. He was against medications, um, at all costs. Okay. And I finally told him, you know, I'm not okay. And what we're doing is not working. I'm going to get on medications. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made a huge difference. Um, now granted at this time I'm diagnosed, um, uh, depressive disorder mm-hmm. um we don't know that i'm bipolar right so they prescribe me antidepressants of course <laughs> and so what i'm thinking is medication working really well mm-hmm. is actually medication sending me into hypomania yeah um and so it was i was on that for about a year before i lost insurance and then mm-hmm. i went from 22 to 32. So I went 10 years um, without medication or, wow. or treatment of any kind. Wow. Um, 
That's that's really interesting. So that's uh, you, as I was listening to you explain that, I, I had so many different reactions. One of the first reactions I had was that with your mother's history of mental illness, it, it it's so strange how in some families, because my family is the same way. We don't really talk about stuff. My family yeah. is very dysfunctional. We've gone through some really intense shit. Um, and a lot of that has been because of me, you know, and, and yeah. my bipolar disorder. And we've never, we never really talk about, oh, you know, we called the police on you that time because yeah. you were so crazy or, you know, we never have those types of deeper conversations. So, um, that was something that resonated with me a lot. Another thing that I was thinking about is for the audience, we should just mention that often, and we, as we always say, we're not doctors, but it is known that antidepressants can be a trigger for mania for some people with bipolar disorder type one or bipolar disorder type two. And it sounds like you had just that classic experience of, oh man, this is really working well. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) Yeah. So what, what, when did you realize that the antidepressant had actually sent you into hypomania? Well, I didn't really even realize it until I was diagnosed Yeah. with bipolar disorder. And I talked to my psychiatrist about it. And because when I was prescribed the antidepressants, it was by a family doctor. It was just a regular primary care physician. Um, when I got diagnosed, I got diagnosed by a psychiatrist and, you know, she's telling me these pills that I need to be on with mood stabilizers because Mm -hmm. antidepressants alone can cause mania. And so knowing that and kind of looking back, I'm like, oh, so that's what happened. (laughs) They weren't just working really well. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, really looking back on events and times and phases in my life. And when I just thought, you know, I was partying too hard or, you know, um, recently divorced and, oh, you know, I'm, I'm living life now. This is what it's supposed to be like. No, those, that, that those weren't normal reactions, um, to the Mm -hmm. extent that I was living them. What kind of partying were you up to? Um, a lot of drinking, uh, promiscuity, yeah. uh, spending a lot, uh, you know, typical manic yeah. behavior. Yeah, for sure. I know, so um, I am a recovering alcoholic, and I've I'm coming up I'm coming up right on God willing seven years of alcohol sobriety. Congrats! But thank you. But the reason I I mentioned that is because back when I was actively drinking, and undiagnosed, and mm-hmm. not on medication or any treatment, I was in the same headspace as you, where I was like rocking out yeah yeah like party party gonna do it like i'm killing it and uh that's and and you feel like you are because you're on top of the world yeah you're flying high you're like what are all these other dumb motherfuckers doing we're just (laughs) just fucking having a good time over being a debbie downer (laughs) yeah yeah exactly so after after that all comes crashing and burning down you have kind of some wake up calls. So do you, uh, do you still use anything like that or are you, have you had to, because I, I have found that I have an addictive personality, um, whether it's with substances or 
people, games, etc. I just I get addictive to things. Addicted to things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was addicted to pain medication for a while because I had it. It was there. I didn't need it, but yeah. I had access to it. Yep. So nonstop, nonstop. Um, drinking, it's a very fine line. Um, my mom passed away last November and I went on a two month bender and I was finally like, you know, uh, one of my friends, like, you're not okay. Yep. You know, this is not you. Mm-hmm. And where I'm thinking I'm fine, I can handle it. It's okay. It's a part of the grieving process for me though. And my tendencies and my personality, it, it's a fine line to walk. So I, I try to stay away from everything. What was your reaction when your friend told you, hey, like, I think something's going on? Well, at first, because she started right when I started drinking, she's like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, no, I'm fine. It's okay. It's not a lot. Well, but at the time I was working from home and it became a, when I got off of work to when I was cooking lunch, I pour mm-hmm. me a drink. When Mm -hmm. I got off work, I'd pour another drink, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, it was really that that wake up call of, okay, you're right. You're coming from a good place. At first, it was like, dude, I'm fine. It's okay. Yeah. Let me grieve, you know? Yeah. But then it became more than just grieving. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's um that's really intense and I know personally when I have a friend I'm so blessed to just have such a supportive friend group right now who yeah. really knows me well and is really respectful and cognizant of the sort of shit that I live with and yes. I'm I'm just so fortunate in that way. So when one of my friends reaches out to me and they can tell something's up and they let me know about it I, it throws me off. I, I, right. I'm, it makes me check myself. I'm like, whoa, okay, yeah. like, it's time to start reevaluating and taking some steps back. Um, although I no longer use alcohol, I, I do occasionally use other substances. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's like there is that fine line to walk. And I think for people like yourself, for people like myself who have addictive personalities, it's it's dicey. You know, right now, uh, where I'm at in my headspace is that I think I, um, I'm going to start taking a break from everything, including marijuana soon. Are you ready for that? Yeah, I am. Uh, marijuana, I can always take it or leave it. I like it a lot, but it's never something I've ever had any sort of like physical or psychological dependency on. So I'll go through phases where I'll smoke weed almost every day for like nine months. And then I'll just be like, okay, yeah, Yeah, I was like, it's time to take a break. You know, I'll come back to this whenever. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, But and I'm not going to just keep talking, talking, talking about myself, but (laughs) you are perfectly fine. But uh, just one thing I'll mention briefly, because I think it's relevant, is that I'm actually on the tail end of a depressive episode. Yeah, I saw Uh, you were having a hard time sleeping and not not sleeping much. Yeah, yeah. I was sleeping like on average two hours a night for about a week and a half. And it it was really messed up. And now um, I met with my doctor actually, and he adjusted my prescriptions and he put me on some really heavy sleep meds just temporarily. Mm -hmm. And I've finally gotten like a good eight hours of sleep for the last three nights in a row. And and that now. 
<laughs> that mm-hmm. first sleep after not having it for so long is like, oh God, I can breathe. Yeah, I woke up and I was like, I'm stoked. I was like, I can't wait to get out of bed. And now I've kind of been thinking to myself over the last couple of days, it's like, now it's time to keep an eye on any hypomanic symptoms Mm -hmm. because that sometimes I do swing like that. So So now do you have any telltales when you're going into mania or hypomania? Yeah. Yeah, What are some of your tells? It's a great question. So for it's different for everyone, right? But for me, um, the number one thing is lack of sleep. If it's depression or if it's mania, I have really significant sleep disruptions. Now, of course, when I'm manic, the sleep disruptions are because I'm awake all the time and like doing shit or abusing narcotics. I haven't had a full manic episode since 2015. Um, But during during that time period where I was full, I had like a just full blown manic episode that lasted about three months or so. Yeah, and it had psychotic features and it was just craziness. Your cross country trip. Yeah, <laughs> the road trip, the the whole odyssey with that. Um, but during that time period, you know, I was not sleeping, I was not eating, I was abusing prescription medication, I was drinking way way too much and so substance abuse is another key indicator for me um if i'm feeling really strong drug or alcohol cravings so that's a big warning sign um another thing would be and this is this is a tricky one because it can come across as being very positive but i get very sociable right yeah (laughs) So I was actually at work yesterday at my lovely day job and I was like in such a great mood and I was in like an unusually great mood and I was talking to some of my coworkers and I was like, I'm just radiating positivity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was fine. You know, it it wasn't inappropriate or anything, but it was just one of those things where I was kind of like is this how I would normally be behaving? This seems just a little bit unlike my normal personality. So but, these and, are, and that's hard, you know, like, is it a yeah. good day? Is it mania? Is yeah, it a yeah. good day? I'm like, is this just how normal people feel? Right. Like, like that's awesome if that's the case. Um, so yeah, anyway, right now, um, just kind of keeping tabs on any hypomanic or manic symptoms. And it's uh, it's been an interesting last couple of weeks for me. I can imagine. But anyhow, let's take it back to you. Um, I had some follow up questions for you right before we started. We were uh, just kind of checking in with each other, and you mentioned that you had had a inpatient hospitalization earlier this year. And I, I I was wondering if you would like to talk to us a little bit about that, maybe share what led up to it and um, just anything you're comfortable with talking about related to that experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I spent um, three days in the emergency room uh, in the hospital. Uh, I got admitted into the emergency room and then spent three days in the hospital. And then I spent another two and a half days in an outpatient facility getting stabilized on medication. Um, it was the end of March, um, earlier in February, I had switched jobs 
And so I lost my insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mood stabilizer I was on at the time, Latuda, um, for anyone who is not aware, is a really expensive drug without insurance. It was $1,200 a prescription. Um, obviously, I can't afford that. That that was more than my rent at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was only on my, I had two antidepressants at the time. Um, my mood stabilizer, which I was not on, uh, my sleep meds and my anxiety meds. Um, and so after about two weeks of not being on the mood stabilizer, I started rapid cycling and mixed cycles. So for anyone who's not aware, that's rapidly going between depressive episodes and hypomanic episodes and, or mixed features. And it was terrible, just terrible um mm-hmm. so i'm dealing with my mom had passed away in november uh, my partner and i had recently broke up and now this mm-hmm. and it was all kind of culminating at the same time and i had started telling my friends and my sisters i can't do this anymore i need to get off my meds and it's a, a you know when i'm in a level mindset when i'm at baseline I can give good advice. I know the things you don't do. I know you don't get off of your meds without doctor orders and doctor supervision, right? But when you're in this state of just chaos, emotional chaos, I was like, I can't do it anymore. I need to get off of them. I'm going to stop them. You know, it was a mix. Some friends are like, you know, if that's what you need to do, do it. And then I have some friends saying, that's not smart. You don't need to do it. Yeah. Um, Let me ask you though, was it due to like side effects or did you just think they weren't helping anymore? What was like the driving factor? Well, with not having my mood stabilizer and going through the mixed features and rapid cycling, I was like, Mm, I I would rather not be on anything. And you didn't want any antidepressants in the mix to like potentiate things. Right. I was like, I don't want to be on anything. I would just rather get off of it until I can see a psychiatrist. Right. Which is, you know, backwards, but, you it's, know. But did, did you have access to a psychiatrist at I that time? I did not at the time. Exactly. Yeah. So how would you have known? You're not a doctor. You, you, right. all, sometimes all we can do is like have the resources in the toolkit that we immediately have available and you have to make like judgment calls. Yeah. And it, it is not easy and it can be very dangerous and it's not your fault. It's that there are extreme limitations on the resources that are available to Americans with serious mental illness, such as being able to routinely check in with a psychiatrist or a therapist. If you lose your insurance that, you know, you're basically fucked. Mm -hmm. So Well, and and my job had a good waiting period as first of the month following 30 days. Mm -hmm. The kicker is I started in February and February only had 28 days. Oh, no. So I had to go an extra month (sighs) before I got that insurance. And so it was not one of the things that I paid attention to between switching jobs, which I should have. And um it, it was just the way that things fell. And, you know, I had, when you're in that state, and I think it's part of the stigma that, that comes with one mental illness and two asking for help. 
I knew I needed help. I mm-hmm. knew I was not okay. I didn't know how to say it. Yeah. You know, I could say, I could tell my family, I could tell my friends, I'm not okay. But I didn't know how to say I need help because I didn't know the help that I needed. I just knew that I was not okay. Yeah. And so I was really struggling with, I have struggled with in the past, uh, with self-harm. Okay. Um, so that was something that I was really struggling with at the time, the urge to self-harm um, and just not wanting to exist. And mm. I told my sisters, there is a point that I was like, hey, guys, I'm, I just want to let y'all know I'm not okay. Like I, yeah. I Googled what it would take if I took all my meds like I'm not okay yeah and and my oldest sister was like you know I'll I can come down next week uh promise me you won't do anything without calling me first and I said okay well a few days later I got triggered I had a depressive trigger I was in the health insurance field I took my health insurance license I found out I couldn't get my license and I was just that was kind of the thing that just blew everything I had been holding inside open. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just felt like, what am I going to do now? I'm going to have to look for another job. I don't have the money to look for another job to sustain myself between. And, you know, all of these things, you know, I've yeah. lost everything. I've lost my job my, in my mind. You know, I hadn't yet, but that was a contingent of my job was getting a license. You know, I'm like, I lost my job. I lost my partner. I lost my mom. Like, what's what's left you know like I have my kids but even then I was like I feel like I'm failing them you know I have failed them miserably and on my way home from work that day it's a 25 30 minute drive home I spent Mm -hmm. that entire time in my head telling everybody I knew and loved goodbye And I knew before I got home, I didn't want to wake up the next day. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that's really hard. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Um, to accept, you know, mm-hmm. that I'm done. Like, I have felt done so many times before. But, you know, one thing my mom always said was I could get knocked down over and over, but I always got up and got further than I was before. And I I felt like I let her down because I didn't think I could do it again. Before she passed away, I promised her I would be okay. You know, I have this amazing partner. I have a great support system. I was like, I'm going to be okay. I'm, I promise you it's it's okay. And I was so very not okay in that moment that I felt like I had just failed her completely Mm -hmm. and I got home and I started taking some of my medications I was on Ambien at the time okay um I I took several Ambien and the next day was a real I don't remember much of it um Mm -hmm. I woke up and I text my job and I told them I was not feeling okay I couldn't come in um throughout the course of the day i took an entire prescription worth of ambien mm-hmm. um i took several of my wellbutrin um any pills that i had i was taking um 
I was sending messages to friends. Um, I had sat in the bathtub the night before and I wrote my kids this long explanatory letter and apology and just, I'm sorry, I love you, I failed you. Um, I, I was messaging friends and it kind of, it wasn't straight goodbyes, but it was a, like a lot of thank you for being mm-hmm. a great friend, you know, thank yeah. you for having been there. And so some red flags went off between friends. Yeah. Um, and finally at one point that night, my sister called me and I'm not sure why I answered the phone, um, uh, but I did. Um, and I told her I was done. I was mm-hmm. like, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Yeah. And she said, what are you trying to say? Mm-hmm. I said, I'm, I'm done. I don't want to exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that time while I was on the phone, she had her husband call a welfare check on me. Um, I don't remember a lot of that. Some of it I know because talking to her about it. Mm-hmm. Some of it, I pieces I can remember going through messages that I had with friends and them telling me. Um, but pretty much that entire day is just gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's pieces of remembering the EMTs coming into my apartment. My sister had made me unlock the door to let them in. Mm-hmm. Um, then coming in, I don't remember being in the ambulance at all. But I remember being wheeled into the emergency room, um, coming in and out of consciousness um, until finally, you know, hours, many hours later, I'm everything's coming out of my system because it was so far after the fact that I had taken them. There was nothing. They couldn't pump my stomach. Yeah. It, it was. They kind of have to just work themselves out. Um naturally they were pumping me with fluids and everything but it was a lot just to know part of me was mad at my sister Mm -hmm. for stopping me right I felt I would have been better off gone um and then especially, you know, once I came to and everything is still trying to work itself out of my system, you know, my motor functions were limited. Um, I was very unstable. Um, and I was like, you know, am I going to be like this the rest of my life? Is this what it's going to be? I have to have someone help me eat. And mm-hmm. I was like, you should have, I told her, I was like, you should have just let me be. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm grateful now, obviously, that I'm here that she called um and that i answered had i not answered the phone i don't know what would have happened it's terrifying to think about things like that isn't it like what just one simple judgment call you made saved your life basically yeah the the decision oh there's a call coming through i guess i'll answer yeah that's such an intense experience though so did they take you after you were in the ER? Did you say that they took you up to an actual psych ward after that? Well, it was an outpatient like 
uh, county facility. Okay. Uh, and it was voluntary. Uh, yeah. I say that with quotations. <laughs> Air quotes there. Um, you know, they, they, they came to talk to my sister and I at the hospital. Uh, Who came? Uh, the a caseworker from the facility. Uh, okay. um, and they're like, these are your options. You know, you can go. We recommend you go. Um, and they 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 present it like it's voluntary. Mm-hmm. And, you but know, then I you signed sister, something, right? Right, right. You know, yeah. and I tell my sister because it, it's a, I know I'm not okay. Like I knew I wasn't okay. I tried in my, I didn't know how to ask for help way to say I wasn't okay. And so I know I need help. I want to get the help. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yes, I want to go to your facility. Yes. Caveat, <laughs> <laughs> you have to play by their rules. Which are bullshit. Right. <laughs> and so like, once I get to the facility and we're doing intake, you sign a paper whether you're there involuntarily or voluntarily and i ask the caseworker that's there i was like well what am what's I the signing? difference right like what's the difference and he's like well voluntary is just saying that you came on your own accord uh involuntary is that you didn't and i was like but i can leave right he's like well no <laughs> and i was like well then that's not really voluntary is it yeah and he's like well I mean, but you're coming here voluntarily. I'm like, but I'm not staying voluntarily. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the difference. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, fine. You know, I, I need to be here. Just, I, I'm hoping it's the, the stability that they're telling me it's going to be, you know, the get stable on your meds and you can go, mm-hmm. you know, because you hear stories of people going in voluntarily but it takes them a long time to get out. Yeah. And it it's hard, you know, you want to be honest and you want to be, you want to get the help that you know you need, but at the same time, you're scared that you're going to be kept there. Yeah. you. It requires you to be extremely judicious with exactly what you're telling people, because effectively in that situation, when you're brought to a hospital like that, you're not just in a medical crisis, you're also in a legal situation. Right. And it's very, very confusing to navigate, let alone after just going through an experience where you almost lost your life. Um, that is crazy to me well let me ask you this though was was the outpatient treatment helpful it was helpful in the sense that they got my meds stabilized right they gave me an alternative to the mood stabilizer i couldn't afford they put me on abilify okay so in that sense it was it was productive however you know i really kind of went in wanting you know like the group therapy sessions and the these kinds of things. And that didn't mm-hmm. exist. They had a caseworker right. come out every day and talk to you for like five minutes. And yeah. otherwise, you know, we had a TV and white rooms and white beds, you know, it was, yeah. Can Sounds I have familiar. a book to read? Oh my God. Yeah. I, we were taught, we were kind of joking earlier about like their bullshit rules that they have. 
Uh, I remember when I was inpatient, it, it was, uh, mine was a civil commitment, which basically the more and more I've come to understand about it over the years is pretty much involuntary. I was brought in by police and then had to meet with a judge and a yeah. lawyer and, um, you know, the whole a, kit and caboodle, a whole kit and caboodle. And it was, um, it was it was just it was the worst it didn't help me out at all and we were talking about just these bullshit rules that they put in place and i'm like what the fuck is this kindergarten what yeah. bedtime is 7 30 get the fuck out of here i'm a grown-ass <laughs> man i'm like do you understand that like i have like a degree and like yeah. a job and like <laughs> it doesn't uh, matter there i'm not a fucking two-year-old yeah treat me with respect treat me as an adult and we'll mutually find a way for me to safely get out of this bullshit. But that's not the way no. these systems that are in place look at it. They want to keep you there. They want to make yeah. money off of you. They want to take your rights away. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was there were little round tables, you know, where we ate. You had a napkin and your cup. You had to leave your cup on the napkin. You couldn't take it to your room. You couldn't take it to the common area. If you did, they're like, oh, you need to put your cup down. You need like, like I'm yeah. a, like you said, a two-year-old. We had snack time. We got little bags of cookies. Yeah, I know. I, I it, felt like I was back in school, but in a very non-fun way. Yeah, man. And uh, the only, I did not like any single aspect of my hospitalization experience. Thank God I was only there for like five days. But um, the only thing there, I think the only moment where I was kind of like, this is somewhat bearable was they had an art therapy room. And I just went in yes, and I, cool. and I'm not good at drawing, but I just went and scribbled. <laughs> I took some crayons and just scribbled some rainbows, some pretty rainbows. Be like, on a see, piece. I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. made a happy picture. Check this out. You guys are doing great. I'm already good. Um, but yeah, man, it, it's just, it's awful. When I was inpatient and I wrote about this in uh, my book, which it, it sounds like you may have, yes. have yeah, you checked that out? Wow. Thank you. So I, I can't believe I people it. come on. That's amazing. Thank you so much for that. It amazes me that people come on the show and like have already read about my life and stuff. It's yeah. just, I'm, I'm very honored by that. Thank you for sharing it. I mean, I, I, it's hard to share this kind of stuff. And so that's what I love about your book, about the platform and, and the spaces when you hold the spaces. I mean, it's, it's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I just I'm so honored. And thank you so much for saying that. Um, in the book, there is a scene where I talk about being in the hospital, there's a chapter about being in the hospital. And I discussed this in the book, but there was a group therapist there, who literally, during his group therapy session, which was like, you know, at it was like in the evening and everyone was already tired and, you know, everyone's already on such heavy medications yeah. that they put you on when you're in the hospital and shit. And I'm just sitting in there listening to this motherfucker <laughs> go on and on about how no one fundamentally has rights. He came into the room and he was like, what rights do you have? 
no, you're wrong. No one has rights. There's no such thing as rights. And I was like, what is he trying to get at? How dare he walk into a room full of a marginalized population and start saying something like that? And I got really mad about it. And I yelled at him. I was like, you're full of shit. This is bullshit. I'm fucking out of here. And he's like, no, you have to stay. And I was like, bitch, I'm going back to my room. I was like, you send those motherfuckers over here and they can talk to me there. I'm done talking to you, you know? So (laughs) that was fun. That was a great moment. Yeah. Good look for me. (laughs) They're like, (sighs) maybe you need to stay a couple extra days. He's so agitated. It's like, of course I am. There's no stimulus here. I can't listen to music. Music is like my number one thing. I can't listen to music. I'm supposed to just sit here for the next five days with no stimulus and just be trapped in my head in this completely humiliating situation. Right. And our heads aren't always the best places to be. Oh, of course not. <laughs> I was having a manic episode. The last thing yeah. I wanted to do was to like be left alone with my crazy psychotic thoughts, you know? Yeah. I And of course, uh, leading up to all of this, I had been under the impression that I was being surveilled by the government and then what 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 happens next thing i know police are at my house detaining me it just confirms yeah yeah i I was like holy shit it's really going it was real the whole time yeah i was was right all along (laughs) um that's wild okay so uh thank you for sharing that experience and let me ask you are you now back on medication I am. So I'm on, um, oh God, I'm on Abilify, Wellbutrin. I'm looking at my my medicine, so I'm like, which ones am I on again? <laughs> Mertazapine, Propanolol. Um, so I'm not on any, well, the Wellbutrin is the only antidepressant I'm on now. Before I was on two antidepressants, a mood stabilizer, anxiety meds, and sleep meds. Um, and my new psych told me you know that's that's a lot of meds i want to try to roll you off of some um and he and i had a a back and forth uh because he tried to take off of my sleep medication and i told him yeah i have insomnia he's like well you're not sleeping because of the depression i was like no i'm not sleeping whether i'm depressed manic or baseline like i am an insomniac i this is diagnosed i i went through the trouble to get the diagnosis please just if you want to take something off, take one of the antidepressants off. I was like, but I'm getting depressed because I'm not sleeping. Mm-hmm. And so we finally came to an agreement on that. Um, and so he took off one of the antidepressants and I feel really well, stable. Um, I've been at baseline now for about two weeks okay. um, and it feels good. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, you look like you're feeling good. I, yeah, I, I <laughs> radiating positivity. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it says a lot. So my new psychiatrist, I saw him and then two weeks later we do a follow-up and, you know, I knew I was feeling depressed again, but I guess sometimes we don't realize how bad it is until someone points it out because two weeks later, he's like, you look so much better. Yes. I said, God, how bad did I look? <laughs> well, uh, hey, I 1000% agree. And as a matter of fact, the first psychiatrist who I ever worked with as an adult, I saw her for like two months and was just completely not doing her treatment plan whatsoever. 
And during one of the final sessions I had with her right before she dropped me, yeah, was um, I had just been awake for like two weeks and I was completely strung out and I thought I was looking great because, you know, I'm like feelings of grandiosity. This is my new style. I look awesome. (laughs) And I walked into her office and she was like, do you realize how disheveled you look? And I was like, like, I look great. I was like, like, yeah, this is like my cool torn up vintage uh, whatever uh, jacket. Um, But no, it's. um, Yeah, I I have been there, too, for sure. Um, Also, I mean, the same thing goes for like when I go into depressive episodes, I often don't realize it until someone like points it out to me or I'm like a week in and it's too late to like do those like basic coping strategies. Mm -hmm. So that's also something I've experienced in that vein. Well, and you had said it earlier about, you know, you have a great circle of friends. I think that's really important because I have a few great solid friends who understand what my depression and hypomania look like and I, mm-hmm. I never had that before and so to have those friends because when you're in it you don't you don't always see it so they can see be like hey you're spending a lot of money lately are you okay mm-hmm. how are you feeling you know be like you haven't been sleeping a lot lately how are you feeling and so it gives you that chance to kind of step back and assess you're like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I am experiencing some hypomania. Let's get a couple extra therapy sessions and let's call the psychiatrist. Yeah, exactly. Like, it makes such a huge difference when someone who like you trust and respect reaches out to you just to be like, hey, dude, like, no judgments, but just like, are you feeling okay? And uh, that that's a really incredible support system to have. Um, is there anything that you've learned about yourself because of your experiences with mental illness? Um, I don't know if I've learned so much. I mean, it's a being able to go back and see. I, you know, for lack of better words, I always thought I was crazy. Like I felt crazy. You know, I'm like, do normal people feel this way? Is this how everybody goes around feeling? Mm-hmm. Does everybody go around wanting to just die and not exist or, you know, be so hyper that people get annoyed by you? You know, is this normal? <laughs> um, so just really having that diagnosis and being able to see like, okay, I'm not, I'm not crazy. Like there's a reason for the way that I am and there's treatment available. So I've, I've learned to love myself, I guess, you know, um, and accept myself that, you know, I am okay the way that I am. Like I might be a little busted. I might have some cracks, but I'm not broken. I always felt broken. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful that you've had that healing process. I I love that for you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And before we um, started recording, we were talking about another thing, which is that you were uh, specifically interested in talking a little bit about family dynamics. We were touching on that earlier with the relationship with your sister and everything. 
But I, I guess I just wanted to circle back to that before the end of the episode. So I guess, first of all, let's start here. What would you say to friends or family members of someone who's living with serious mental illness? Like, what's the first thing they should understand? Patience. I, I think patience is a big thing. Um, we can't always control what's going on in our heads. Um, so just giving us some grace and loving us through it um, is, is a big thing. I mean, yeah. for me anyways, and just having that support and really under trying to understand that's something that I have come to know that I didn't realize I needed. Like when friends ask me, Hey, what, what does mania look like for you? You know, what does depression look like for you? I mean, that's such a huge, that just that simple thing means so much to be yeah. understanding of what I'm experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic point. And I think I would also, and this kind of goes hand in hand with what you just said, but the non-judgmental aspect of things, you know, yeah. um, that's really important to keep in mind too. So you had your sister reach out to you in that moment of crisis. Are there any other kinds of support that your family has offered over the years to, you know, help you out as you battle through this condition? I mean, in the, in the beginning with just the depression, not really. I mean, it, it was a, this is what it is. I'm getting medication. It wasn't talked about. <clears throat> and and it wasn't really until when my mom got sick with cancer that I even like really started opening up to her about mm. how involved some of these symptoms of the diagnosis are, you know, I had told her, you know, Hey, I am diagnosed bipolar. And it was kind of like, okay, um, congrats. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know? uh, why are you telling me? <laughs> right. You know, and, and like, she never made me feel bad about it or anything. Um, but it was a, it, we didn't talk about it. Um, and so it wasn't really until she got, was sick that I was like, you know, I, I, I was kind of to the point of, I didn't feel judged by her anymore. And we had gotten so close because I was taking her to some of her appointments, her radiation. I was kind of like, hey, you know, I, I am struggling with self-harm right now. You know, it's, you know, I had went out and got a tattoo because I was having an urge to self-harm. And she's like, but why? Why do you feel that way? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I, I can't explain to you. There's not always a trigger. There's not always a why, you know, there's certain times that I can be like, oh, I'm depressed because this happened, you know, like this is affecting me. But then there's just days where I just, I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. And some days I struggle with self-harm and that was one of those days. And I was like, but I want you to understand, you know, that yeah. this is something I'm dealing with. And I'm working on it. Like, this is what, this is what I'm doing in therapy. This is what I'm doing with the psychiatrist, you know, like, yeah. and so I never felt judged by her, but I, I never really felt she was involved with it, you know, um, like, like she wasn't listening. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then I have my older sister who is my best friend who has just supported me 
through everything and she understands and sees it and you know she's one of those people that can be like you're talking a little fast today yeah how are you feeling yeah um so it's kind of mixed and and then I have my middle sister who like my mom we don't acknowledge it we don't talk about it um Mm. I try um but there's comments that are made that that make me feel unwelcome and kind of bad about myself um when I had got the diagnosis for BPD uh borderline personality disorder um it's something that I had looked into before I was diagnosed bipolar um it was one of those I knew I wasn't okay I knew it wasn't just depression Mm -hmm. what is it um and I was like you know there's a lot of things that that fit with BPD Uh, but my first psychiatrist said no and I was like okay and I, I my therapist said no and I said okay fine like I'm not I'll accept it and then with the new psychiatrist, you know, I'm just talking to her. And she said, has anybody ever asked you about BPD? Mm. And I was like, no, I've been told repeatedly that it can't be this. <laughs> She's like, it sounds like you are. <laughs> and so I had text my sisters, you know, because I had started group texting them, like really letting them know what's going on with me, how my mental yeah. health process is going. I mean, especially once my mom passed away, because now it's just, it's just us, yeah. you know, and we have to have each other's backs. We have to lean on each other. Um, but, but that particular sister had made a comment about me self-diagnosing myself, um, which made me feel invalidated. Um, and, and just, yeah. it's like, I mean, no, I mean, is it wrong that, I, I researched things to to figure out what was going on with me, you know. Not like, to mention, does she not understand that once you're in a hospital that yeah. that's where you get diagnosed? Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and you know, and that was a hard thing too, my hospitalization, because my oldest sister, she was four hours away. She drove up that that very next morning to come to the wow. hospital. Um and I think my middle sister checked on me through my oldest sister, but you know, she, she was two hours away. She never came to see me. Um, and, and that was hard to, to like, like, man, like I just had this major event and you know, you're not here mm-hmm. that, that hurt. Yeah. Now that these crisis situations have happened, do you now have an emergency plan in place? Like, for example, with your older sister who you're really close with, um, have you like sat down and like talked about what you'll do if something like that ever happens again? Uh, no, which, you know, bringing up is definitely something that needs to be done. It's a you you think that once it's happened, it won't happen again. Right. Uh, we know what caused it. Let's keep that from happening. Um, stay on meds. Don't change meds. You know, ask for help. You know, we've we talked about that kind of stuff, like with therapy. Um, but no, like real. You know, where do we go? Mm-hmm. What are we gonna do? Just the preventative measures we've talked about. You know. 
Yeah. You said you're currently on medication, so I, I would imagine you're working with a psychiatrist. Um, is that correct? Yes, I have Are, a psychiatrist and a therapist. And a therapist, too. Mm -hmm. It might be worth talking to your therapist and maybe coming up with some sort of contingency plan. That's something I've been meaning to do with my own therapist for a really long time. Yeah. Um, I've been relatively stable uh, up... Man, uh, up until the last six months, I've been relatively stable for the most part, but I've had a lot of environmental stressors in my life too. And changes. Um, lots of changes, lots of stressors, and my stability has been kind of up and down over the last couple of months. So one of the things that I was talking to my therapist about was like, you know, um, if there ever is a situation where I end up in a hospital, like you're going to be the first person who I call, or I'm going to call my family and tell them to call you immediately. Yeah. So I shared my, her, my therapist's contact information with both of my parents and just told them, listen, the only reason you ever use this number is if I am like dying or hospitalized. And yeah. call, and then you call her and just you all you do is tell her that and that's all she needs to know. Um, another good thing that I haven't done, but I should do, especially since I just recently moved to a new city, is I need to do research on psychiatric treatment hospitals that are in this area. Yeah. So I know how to navigate them because not all hospitals are created equal. And I don't no. want to be in some nightmare scenario. <laughs> Like lived that once, don't want to go back. Oh my gosh, I know. Yeah, it's like been there, done that, never again. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I I don't know. Maybe that's just something to think about. I mean, absolutely. You know, it's because it's a. You never know when that stressor can hit. You never know when that stressor can happen. And, it, and yeah, it could be anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it could be a legitimate stressor too, such as a death in the family or like a car accident or something, you know? Right. So yeah. Anyhow, I, I guess just when it comes to living with such complicated conditions, like the ones that you and I live with, you, you just have to have like a greater degree of like self-accountability and foresight. And yeah. you have to conduct yourself in, intelligently it's very interesting. I, I think that a lot of um, quote unquote normal people, everyone is special <laughs> and unique, but some fall on different yeah. parts of the bell curve. Um, I just think a lot of uh, neurotypical people don't ever think about that sort of thing. Like they've never been in a situation where suddenly you've accidentally signed paperwork and now you can't leave a secure facility for a week or whatever, yeah. you know, they, they don't understand that these are things that systemically happen to people with mental illness and their human rights issues. Well, so, and then even when you're outside of it, you know, when you're with your psychiatrist and therapist, you know, how open can I be to right. not end up there? You right. Know? I feel like we always have that fear of there's somewhere for us to go and be put you know? Yeah. yeah. It feels like you, it basically feels like being incarcerated. It feels very prison like, Yeah, and you're totally right. Like oftentimes I have to be very measured with the way I speak with my psychiatrist. Cause I don't want him to be alarmed about anything. If I like misspeak, exactly. um, as I was going through this, uh, 
depressive episode over the last couple of weeks, I did have an appointment with my psychiatrist and I've worked with him for a little over a year now. And suicidal ideation isn't anything new to me, but I'd never shared that with him before. But I told him because it was starting to get kind of alarming to me. I was like, listen, like, just be transparent with you. I'm, you know, I've been having like suicidal ideation. And then I immediately followed up by saying, I absolutely am not following through. Right. I do not have a plan. That's the kicker. I don't have a plan. But and, and I hate that question. Because ideation is something that I struggle with and have, I mean, since I can eighth grade freshman year, you know, I have always had that. And so I hate that question. When you see the psychiatrist, do you have any suicide, suicidal thoughts? I'm like, yeah, I mean, yes, but I don't have a plan. Like, I don't want to exist, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to kill myself. I just don't want to be here. I mean, take that as you will. Yeah, no, I I know exactly what you're talking about. I I was having kind of like a late night freak out about something a couple of months ago. And while I'm pretty cagey with my psychiatrist, my therapist is fucking awesome. I've worked with her for (laughs) about four years now. She's so good. I really, really like her. And, and it's because I can trust her and we have like a good like rapport with each other. Right. And um, when I was having this, like, it was just this really weird freak out situation where I, I saw something in the news that just completely triggered me. It was it, it, like some violent crime shit. And um, it just had me, I, I don't know what it was. It, it's like kind of like what you were talking about earlier, where there had just been all this background stress. And finally, one more thing happened where I was just like, all right, done. I'm I was out. like, done. <laughs> Fuck it. Like, this is like, I cannot reconcile living in this universe right, right. now. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's hard right now. It's really hard. Yeah. We've got the end of days. We've got war in Ukraine, the plague. It's it's just everything outrageous. You name it, we've got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but my therapist is super cool. And I called her at like one in the morning and I w- I just left her a voicemail and was like, hey, um, and sounding as calm as I possibly could. <laughs> I was just like, oh, uh, good evening. I was just wondering <laughs> if you could possibly give me a call back immediately. <laughs> like super calm, like, like not okay, but I'm yeah, and, and then like, I, everything's fine. And then I sent her a follow-up email and was like, good evening. Could you please call <laughs> me for a confidential doctor-client conversation? but like to my surprise she actually called me back like 10 minutes later and she was like yeah she's so good like most therapists would not do that and she called me and she was just like hey hey like is everything okay and I was like not really and she's like (laughs) she was like okay well like just like kind of take it down and she step back I just talked to her for like five minutes and she was able to kind of get me just to chill the fuck out. And I was right. like, oh, I was like, okay, cool. Like I got it. Like we're good. But it, yeah, I, I'm so glad that I have resources like that available right now because yeah. historically I haven't. And um, that therapist, that phone call that I made late at night, I wouldn't have done that with any other therapist who I've ever worked with because yeah. it, it would cause undue alarm. Um, 
And that's how you end up getting like wellness checks called on you and shit. So yeah, it's, it's good to have that. I've had my therapist for three and a half, four years now also. Um, and, and he's great. He's one of those people that can tell by my demeanor, by my speech patterns, mm-hmm. you know, where I'm at on my baseline, you know, whether I'm baseline, depressive, hypomanic, you know, and it's it's great to be able to have that, um, that support and to have somebody be like, can you get me in an emergency session? Like I'm not yeah. okay this week, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that was really hard. Like, earlier this year with my hospitalization, when I got out, you know, he was like, why didn't you call me? I know. You know? And I was like, I could, I, I thought about calling him, my sister, my best friend, my cousin. I was like, but after every scenario in my head, I still couldn't see a path for me. You know, like I couldn't see anything anymore. And he was like, like, you know, thank you for saying that. He's like, I, I've wondered, he's like, he had a friend that passed from suicide. He's like, you know, I always wondered why he didn't call me. He's mm-hmm. like, you know, I've never had the opportunity to ask somebody. He said, so thank you. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. We've covered a whole lot of ground and we're coming right up on the one hour mark. I had a couple of quick questions for you if you still have a few minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, one of the questions I had to switch over to a more positive note is what do you do to relax? Like what self-care exercises or strategies are you using right now? So I do a lot of online gaming um cool so that that helps music helps i love music anything and everything um and my cat and my kids i mean those are they bring me down to earth and remind me you know that it might be a bad day but it could be worse you know um so so that and just you know simple things you know just simple necessities, bathing, taking care of myself, doing my nails, you know, just those kind of things. So just be like calm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Taking care of yourself and just doing things that are relaxing and are for yeah. you to take a moment and just like chill. Uh, what, what kind of music have you been listening to lately? Do you have like any top artists who you've been into? Um, right now I've been in my anime playlist a lot. <laughs> okay. never mind. <laughs> Honestly. What's the um, anime? No, I'm joking. What's the anime playlist? Uh, I have a mix of my hero academia, black clover, uh, demon slayer i mean you name it it's there i i just love music that pumps me up that makes me feel happy um mm-hmm. and then at night i go to sleep to uh Bromstein's, uh piano playlist uh they did oh, a yeah. piano album yeah uh so i go to sleep to that or to apocalyptica which is a swedish cello rock band <laughs> yeah yeah, they're cool. They do like covers of Metallica songs and yeah. stuff. I mean, I love music. Music's huge to me. I'm a musician and I constantly am listening to music if um if I'm at work or if I'm just chilling. It's like I got to have some sort of stimulation in the background. Yeah just to like keep things going. I was going to talk to you about Rammstein. Um I've been listening to a lot of Rammstein lately. Yeah, which like a lot. Just all of them. 
Um, their first one, Rise Rise, which is my all-time favorite by them. And I also really like Rose and Road. Okay. Yeah. I, I really liked Flasher's album, Prom Sign. It was yeah, the one album. with the matchstick on it. Yes. Yeah, that was cool. I loved that album. I that's probably my favorite one. Um their first one, I have some great songs that I love from there, but last year's one was really good. Yeah, what's the first the first one is called like Sunswicht or something? It has like a weird German name that yeah, I, can't I know pronounce. it's I, I can see the cover. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah, it's got a freaky, freaky cover. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah, nah, but yeah, like do Haas. Like any anything that has like a really nice, like intense kind right. of like pounding beat. I, I fucking love that. Um, well, I, my favorite song is from the last album is Puppet. Puppet. Okay. Oh, I love that song. I that don't song know, is a good one. I don't know that one off the top of my head, unfortunately. But I, I think if I'm remembering correctly, is that the one that has Auslander on it? Yes. I really yeah, like Auslander. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good catchy one. You know, I used Auslander. to. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's funny, you know, because I took two years of German in high school. Uh, yeah. So I love listening to it and like seeing what I can translate and what I remember mm-hmm. before I look to see what the lyrics are in English. Uh, <laughs> and so like my kids, they'll be in the car and I'm jamming out to German music and so you know they can pick up some of the words now and and sing it and i that's I just cool love that. yeah how old are they they're 11 and 13 oh boys. cool so they're they're that's like a good age to start getting into romstein yeah do you listen to any other metal um i listen to a lot i used to love three days grace okay uh so not metal um not yeah no i listened to your stuff <laughs> really yeah you put a new one out uh not too long ago i think was it because um, i just saw it recently on my spotify i have two projects the the last project i was working on is called last known images and i released an lp about a year and a half ago and then i have some solo work that i've been doing i released a solo ep at the beginning of this year and then there was a single that I released like two months ago called Burning Summer. Yes. Which I, is I think that might be the one that I saw. Cool. Yeah. People seem to be liking that one, which uh, is really cool. It's kind of surprised me because I it's a lot different than the type of music I would normally write. But music is a huge outlet for me, writing music as well as listening to music. Well, thank you so much for supporting my work. I can't you've read my book. You've been listening to my music. That's yeah. and now. You, and now you're on my podcast. Yes. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> well, you're welcome back anytime. I think this has been a great conversation. Yeah. And before we close out i always just like to pass it back over to the guest for a second and ask if you have anything else you'd like to add or any other questions or just comments or anything uh stay strong keep your head up for anybody that's going through anything uh with mental illness it's not easy you're not alone i think that's a big thing um i love being reminded you know, just little things here and there that other people feel this way. And I'm not the only one. I'm Mm -hmm. not a broken human. Um, I think that's a big message that a lot of people can hear is you're not broken and you're not alone. Yeah. 
you're never alone, man. It's it's so isolating though sometimes, but we have things now like like social media, like the um, communities that we created through Twitter spaces and yeah. stuff where even if you don't have someone in your personal real life who you can you know reach out to, you still have peers online who you can talk to. And that's really, really important. When I was first diagnosed and when I was going through my really intense manic episode, I didn't have any friends. I didn't have anyone who I could talk to. I had alienated everyone around me. And the only person I could talk to was my psychiatrist who didn't want to talk to me. She just wanted yeah. to prescribe medication. Um, and you weren't trying to take them. <laughs> and I wasn't taking it. <laughs> so yeah, it was a recipe for disaster. But these days I'm very, very blessed to have a supportive and caring friend group of you know, people who I've met throughout my life. Some of them I've known for over 20 years now. We've been like lifelong friends and it's just amazing to have that kind of relationship with people. And then I have a lot of new friends who like <laughs> Twitter friends, people yeah. through the Twitter verse who um, I've become close with. And I just had a conversation, an extended conversation last night with a guy who lives in the UK and how else would I ever have met him? Exactly. If it yeah. weren't for Twitter spaces. It's so weird. Elon Musk is going to fuck it all up. But, oh, absolutely. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I'm thankful for like, I have a great Discord group from my gaming. And the very first person I ever met other than myself that was bipolar was from that group. And I was like, hey, we're friends now. Yeah. <laughs> and so like we can relate to each other in that way. So that was the first like ever like relatable person that I had until I got on Twitter. And and now there's just so many people that I've connected with through Twitter, through the Twitter spaces that you host. And it's just an awesome thing to be able to come together with other people of like minds. Absolutely. Well, do you have any projects you're working on or any like social media you'd like to plug? Um, I just have my my Twitter, my Orphan Moon Twitter. Um, okay. I'm writing, but nothing is published or on blogs or anything like that. Um, just trying to get back into writing. Awesome. Thank you so much for being so vulnerable and open about everything that's been going on. Um, I I really appreciate it. And I really do wish you all the best. And I wish you health and happiness. Thanks, Hunter. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Suicide is a really hardcore topic, to say the least, but it's something that significantly impacts our society. There are over 130 suicides each day in the United States. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, in 2020, over 45,000 Americans died by suicide. In that same year, 1.2 million suicides were attempted. Remember that resources are available to you if you are experiencing suicidal ideation or perhaps have a plan in place to take your own life. For example, 
There's the new 988 National Suicide and Mental Health Hotline, where you can call or text and speak to someone. I did research on it, and the 988 number does not automatically dispatch crisis intervention teams to your location or mean that you inherently will be hospitalized. I know that I personally had that concern about the 988 number until I did further research on their website. According to them, less than 2% of their calls are referred to police and or EMS. If you just need someone to talk to for a few minutes, it might be a good option, although I have not personally used it at this time. As a matter of fact, if anyone out there listening has ever used the 988 number, be sure to connect with me because I'd like to hear your experience with it. The 988 number is just one example of a resource available that can help with suicide prevention. In my own experience, I've found peer support groups to be very helpful as well. Twitter Spaces, Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, also known as DBSA, Smart Recovery, and National Alliance on Mental Illness, also known as NAMI, are all examples of resources where I've found peer support for all sorts of things related to bipolar and substance abuse issues. Regarding my own life that was touched on during this installment, my holiday crisis from late November was no joke and really changed my perspective on certain things. It continues to blow my mind how throughout these installments of Bipolar Recorder that I did in early November of this year, I keep bringing up things like being on new medications, experiencing mood cycles, experiencing severe insomnia, and so on. You'll continue to hear ominous, foreshadowing statements in the next installment as well. If you'd like to hear about the actual crisis situation itself, Check out episode 29, Hunter's Holiday Crisis and Whack Drug Relapse. My name is Hunter Keegan. Today's guest was Brittany. Brittany can be found on Twitter at OrphanMoon21. Also be sure to check the episode notes for more info. I'm on Twitter at HHKeegan. Bipolar Recorder is on Twitter at Bipolar Recorder. Feel free to reach out and connect. Remember to tell your friends about this show and rate and review if you've been enjoying it. Thanks again for listening and have a great, safe day, evening, or night wherever you are. Polar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.